You're listening to the Elmira Radio Hour, a podcast that opens the door to culture and news you definitely missed this week. We're, We're your, your hosts, hosts, Nina Bhattacharya and Sheila Lal. It's the day before the election, and Sheila and I wanted to encourage you to make a plan to vote. It can be really helpful to look up your polling location as well as its hours, just so you can incorporate voting into your already busy schedule. You can go to rockthevote.com. You can also Google, where is my polling location? And Google has a very handy way of identifying that for you. Another thing that's a concern in this election is people might say that you might not be eligible to vote. We really recommend that you check out the ACLU's Know Your Rights guide on what to do when faced with voter intimidation. We'll be sure to include that in our show notes. But the election protection hotline is 866-OUR-VOTE. And the Department of Justice Voting Rights Hotline is 800-253-3931 or 800-253-3931. Go check out these resources, make a plan to vote, and participate if you can in whatever way you can. There's a lot at stake this year. With that, we'll jump into your episode. Uh, We'll be talking about fragile masculinity and vulnerability, uh, the recent strike at Harvard, political ads, and substance abuse in Punjab. Let's get to it. So I was at this NAACP forum. It was the last legislative forum of the season. It was for Boone County Commission and for all the House seats, but not for the Senate seat. And uh, only two Republicans showed up. Mm. Yeah, which always happens at events hosted by people of color. What do you know? I am much surprised. All of the surprise. Yep. Um, so there were questions about like Amendment 6 or the photo ID, uh, constitutional change amendment. Um, there was a question about gun safety. There was a question about Planned Parenthood. There was a question about just general health care. And the amount of pivoting is pretty incredible that they had like, or amount of like, malleability that the Republicans have to give their answers. Um, and so I left after the photo ID question, but uh, apparently they were next. The next question was about the death penalty and the Republican running to be my next representative said that he was for the death penalty. And apparently one of the audience question, audience members said, uh, aren't you pro-life though? Like dude, dude got called out. No, as he should. Like, I don't understand how those two things can coexist also again anti-choice is not pro-life the republican running for southern Boone county district commissioner made this comment about photo id and saying that fundamentally all these things that we're talking about come from a place of distrust all these issues shouldn't even be uh, priorities but it's because people don't trust one another it's like what are you talking about no wait i mean it's like photo id laws are built on distrust exactly It's like you're clearly showing, like, we don't believe you as citizens Uh of this country to exercise your rights responsibly. Or to even Um, represent 
yourself in the like to identify self-identify we do not trust you what that's twisted logic yeah that was super fun i mean in terms of other ballot news i got the correct absentee ballot which is good so i'm voting absentee in michigan and i had this great text from my dad like last (laughs) week just like hey they sent you the wrong ballot apparently the genesee county had printed off some uh ballots that could not be read by the scanners no no it's just like it blew my mind i was like gosh like for me anyway i've always heard in theory all of these mess ups with ballots and things like that but never have i personally experienced it myself and i didn't really want to have my ballot to be hand counted because that would be the last thing they would do and like they're only brought out when during like a tiebreaker situation and like that's not what i wanted my vote to be i Mm -hmm. want mine to be counted Right then and exactly. there. So I got my correct ballot. I'm going to fill that out tomorrow. I'm going to send that That's in. That's exciting. Yeah, dude. I'm so excited to vote. Some states, they actually are starting to send the I Voted stickers. I know. The absentee ballot, which is a nice touch. It is really nice. Um, my cousin in Georgia just got hers. And it's a cute little peach on her mm-hmm. I Voted. Oh, totally had something to say. <laughs> but then I forgot about it. <laughs> Um, so something that I actually really have enjoyed this election season are the different ads. Okay. Tell me about those ads. Cause I don't have a television and I have not had oh, a I don't, I don't watch ads on TV. It isn't just like mid Missouri candidates, but there are a lot of different candidate ads that I've seen that are specifically for Facebook or YouTube. So yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. And I really have, I mean, they're not specifically for the internet, but they're, they're also posted on the internet. So obviously you have like Jason Kander's AR-15 ad where mm-hmm. my former boss, who's now Secretary of State of Missouri and is running to replace Roy Blunt as the next US Missouri senator, has a blindfold on and is assembling an AR-15. And he's a Democrat and he's doing this to show like, hey, you can still you can understand guns and still be about common sense gun control. So the spot is 30 seconds. From what I heard, they had to do the shot multiple times because he went too fast what yeah oh because he was in the military like he knows how to do this Mm -hmm. so he had so they told him to slow down um and at the end he says i i support this message because i'd like to see senator blunt do this sassy pants i know i know Um, sass there's this really good california ad um where they have this grandmother in a park with her grandson and they're talking about this guy's record mm-hmm. and it starts off innocently enough and then she starts using curse words to express how she feels about this guy's position oh. do like a good bait and switch on the viewer and then uh steven weber who's running to be my senator uh, the state senator he just released i think his final ad of the season uh and he's done this story arc for his ads mm-hmm. But this last one is about why he decided to sign up for the military and the impact it had on his mother and the impact it had on his squad. Mm. It exposes vulnerabilities and vulnerabilities in leadership and how you can utilize those fears or those anxieties to strengthen your community. Mm. Vulnerability is a good point because it's not often when men Mm -hmm. give themselves space or each other space to be vulnerable in that sense. And I think this is a good transition. It's about that quote I was showing you by Dr. Chanda Prescott-Weinstein, who is a physicist at MIT. And this, again, has to do with male vulnerability and male fragility. And she had tweeted recently that white male academics are allowed a level of mediocrity that minorities are never allowed, especially people of color. And piggybacking off of that, there's an excellent scene in the most recent 
uh, season of Scandal, where Olivia Pope's dad tells her that she has always had to prove with four times the amount of effort that she is just as valid as a white person. So in this tweet, it's just saying all people of color, but I think Mm -hmm. it's something we can extend to women of color more specifically. For sure. Women are criticized for their vulnerability, but they're expected to show vulnerability. No matter what you do, you lose. Yeah. Vulnerability isn't considered a string. I think when we talk about like these intersections of race, gender, and class, a lot of men of color specifically forget to include gender in mm-hmm. that intersection. For the for a lot of men of color, it's about how their experiences as uh, with race informs how they engage with the greater world. For, and then forgetting that gender is a huge part of that and re-expressing those systems of oppression on their female counterparts this very well expressed in the Black Lives Matter movement, where it's it's a movement started by Black women. But most people, I would venture, don't know that it was founded by Black women. Yes, Black men are disproportionately experiencing violence at the hands of law enforcement, but Black women are too. And that we mm-hmm. know the names of Eric Garner and Mike Brown and Trayvon Martin, but don't know the names of Rakia Boyd and the just and Sandra, Bland. Sandra Bland, all of the other women of color who have experienced the same thing. Um, is mm-hmm. I wonder what you think between how this tension and then this lack of recognition of what women of color are experiencing, particularly within the South Asian community. Fundamentally, like there's this idea of public and private space and that men hold those public spaces. So when we talk about, for instance, like street harassment, this is a very broad topic, but like women are yelled at and like verbally assaulted or physically assaulted by physically being outside as opposed to being inside is this very visible expression that women's needs need to be kept or private. That women's expression of self is it's not for public consumption in a way that they can own. Mm-hmm. Women of color are murdered. Trans women of color are murdered at an extraordinary rate. Mm-hmm. But their struggle and that like extreme violence is not blown up in public spaces at the same rate it is with men of color. I don't know. There's a lot of to detangle with like power structures and cultural norms and why it is that the loudest people, it is men speaking up, but not on behalf of everyone. Mm -hmm. But when we see it in the South Asian community, there's a lot of South Asian American men who will say that they're quote unquote for the struggle or like trying to work on their social justice or their wokeness. But when they're pushback or when there's criticism from women of color, it's dismissed. When women in particular express an opinion that mm-hmm. is opposite of that of a guy and it is in a social justice context, the woman is derisively labeled a social mm-hmm. justice warrior or too sensitive, which is such an interesting d- double standard given that we're also criticized for being too loud, for, for being too strident. Like we're either too much or we're not enough. Too much. Yeah. That is a phrase that we I'm sure all the women of color listening to this have heard at some point in their lives from men that they thought cared about them. We've described as whack-a-mole. Like the mo- uh, women are <laughs> expected to do the emotional labor of correcting and explaining and being patient. Like, and I am so for calling in versus calling mm-hmm. out. And I'm so for 
empathy and compassion. But it's like really hard when it's not actually internalized or taken like with respect or valued. By not actually internalizing it and like me having to repeat it myself again and then being labeled as too sensitive. But then there's even that where it's like, and this is a blanket statement and I get it, but a lot of men don't change unless someone they love tells them to do this work. You know, like they don't take it upon themselves to like be compassionate and like learn about other people's experiences and like Mm, internalize it. And that's like the crux of my issue with it. It has a lot to do with how women are socialized, Mm -hmm. period. Um, so I've been doing a lot of reading today in particular about women and mental mm-hmm. health and like their perceptions of what it means to be healthy. And a lot of it has to, and from qualitative research shows that like among a lot of American women, health is defined relationally, mm-hmm. like it's defined through a social context. It isn't just physical okay. health. Um, so what are the strategies that you would focus on or invest in to boost health? Women are often saying, hey, like, invest in my family. Yeah. Like, invest in services that take care of my kids. Yeah. I think part of it does have to do with this factor. Of- I just hope that in the future, uh, parents decide to socialize sons with more compassion as opposed to or girls and women thinking that they have to be more standoffish. Or have to socialize to be more mm-hmm. selfish. When people listen or listen before they respond, like that little pause gives an individual an ability to synthesize in a much more powerful way. As my grandmother likes to say, we have two ears and one mouth for a reason. <laughs> I love that. Can I be a little lame and read you a quote about critique? Yeah. Um, it's by Maria Popova of Brain Pickings was that be generous with your time and your resources and with giving credit and especially with your words. It's so much easier to be a critic than a celebrator. Always remember there's a human being on the other end of every exchange and behind every cultural artifact being critiqued. To understand and be understood, those are among life's greatest gifts and every interaction is an opportunity to exchange them. I like that. Yeah, I mean, it's just like, I, I feel like if that infused all of the kind of cultural dialogue that is happening, that we've been experiencing between men and women recently. A little bit more specifically, when we talk about critique and when we talk about art and like who produces art and for what reason, I think it's really important to understand that art is a gradient, culture is a gradient. There's going to be stuff that... One person perceives as quote-unquote lowbrow or something that they perceive as quote-unquote highbrow, but it's not a dichotomy, and that we all can reside on the gradient. Like, I know I like really shitty music sometimes. I get it. I enjoy higherbrow, quote-unquote higherbrow movies. That's fine. That doesn't mean that they're at odds with each other, and I can still appreciate that other people also enjoy seemingly contradictory cultural artifacts. When something is considered lowbrow or unsophisticated and it resonates with a lot of a lot of people, that in itself sp- says something. That it's culturally um, relevant. It's culturally relevant. And that maybe the modes of production of these cultural artifacts, as we're calling them, the way we're producing pop culture, the way we're producing writing and movies and all of these different forms of art in the past hasn't been accessible. No. Like... Immediately as you said that, I thought about the movie Tangerine. And I don't know how many, if you are familiar with it, but it is this really incredible fictional film about um, 
trans sex workers in LA and they use trans actresses and they use like actors and actresses who are intertwined with these communities that they're representing. Mm -hmm. So that's why I went to go see the movie. A bunch of older white folks went to go see the movie because it was all filmed on an iPhone 5, which is really interesting to see what those point of entry is to this like independent film. And like, what Mm -hmm. is, Mm -hmm. like, how is it considered art to you? We saw it as art because it portrayed other like marginalized communities in with respect. And we wanted to see that, that anomaly. Mm-hmm. While a lot of white folks went to go see it because of the technical anomaly. And like, what does that actually mean to the, to the audience? And so generalizing how somebody engages with it does the entire process disservice. And it, again, it plays into these ideas of compassion and empathy that we've been discussing. And I really wonder how empathy can be reproduced mm-hmm. or conveyed in situations where you don't know someone. Just thinking of the political climate we're in, the election mm-hmm. that we're in, how, how do you get people who have maybe not ever met someone of color to empathize, encourage how to, you know, like what it would be like to be in someone else's shoes? Like that's, I think that's like the biggest challenge and you see it urban rural you see it dc and the rest of the country you see it black you know like on racial lines religious lines sexual identity and gender identity lines this actually like plays back into how art can generate empathy uh so every year true false happens in colombia and true false is the country's largest documentary film festival it happens during legislative session the capital is only 30 miles away from Columbia. It just struck me last year, like, or how isn't there an outreach program for these legislators to come up, have like a couple of free tickets to go see different movies because these movies express lived experiences outside of theirs. Do you think they would understand that it would be educational for them? I mean, it could be marketed as like, hey, like this is happening and it's important to the yeah, community and you, and you should come. come. And it's not even that we ex- like expect these people to like all of a sudden have their entire world turned upside down. I just expect like a little bit of progress. We're also thrilled to share with you that we were interviewed by The Aerogram, which is an amazing space for South Asian culture, arts, literature, life, and news. Um, You can find them at theaerogram.com, and we'll include a link in our show notes where you can read about the wonderful conversation Sheila and I had. It is kind of wonderful to see where the podcast is going, and we're grateful for your guys' support. Speaking of The Aerogram... Um, it's because of them we were introduced to our musical feature for this episode, Young Cardamom and Hab. This hip-hop duo is based in Uganda. You might have, if you've watched Queen of Katwe, you might have heard their song Number One Spice, which is catchy, vibrant, clever, and effortless. But we want to introduce you to a little bit more of their catalog, Kanda Chop Chop is the single that we'll be featuring today. What's super special about them is that they take, have a very nuanced take of this intersection of identity, race, class. They rap in six different languages, Luganda, English, Hindi, Swahili, Runyoro, Nubi. They explore all sorts of themes, legacies of colonialism, playing with post-colonial societies, 
and issues of black, brown and black relations within Ugandan society. We hope you love them as much as we do and I've been listening to their most recent album on repeat for the last couple of weeks and I think after you hear this song you will too. Just wanna put you in my cabera. So I so I check my baggage once I'm sending. Chop, chop, chop it up. Chop, chop, chop it up. Chop. Chop, chop it up. Chop, 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 chop it up. Kanda, eno ye mere. Kanda, be a bad belly. Kanda, tell me if you feel it. Kanda, do it when you're ready. Kanda, tabi na kanene. Kanda, hands up in the air like. Kanda, eno ye mere. Kanda, be a bad belly. Kanda. Too much beauty, you don't need a trace. Bring it up, yo, Jibunana. Hilo's ID, Jabanana. Talkum cool, Kandamana. Chop, chop, chop it up. Chop, chop, chop it up. Chop. Chop, chop it up. Chop, 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 chop it up. Kanda, eno ye mere. Kanda, be a bad belly. Kanda, tell me if you feel it. Kanda, do it when you're ready. Kanda, tabi na kanene. Kanda, hands up in the air like. Kanda, eno ye mere. Kanda, be a bad belly. Kanda. I got the same mystery as Chapati, origins of India, but born in Eugene. Rock brown skin, bandi mona Uganda ru, yembe ko muru zungu ne muru ganda. So I take my cabera, get it packed like a big panda, 'cause I wanna eat it early, so be fully matcha tanda. Chapa was a part, now it's the whole me. Rubitano yebe, kwata kwata kudiro, kwata kwata kudiro, kwata kwata kudiro, kwata kwata kudiro. Fresh in the morning, figure I yeah. Twisty roll to put chai yeah. Some people have this motor called Chikomando. I be singing this song about Mambo Bado. If you wanna get a taste, come to Masto. Doing Kanda is so nice and simple. Unataka moja au triple. Kanda non-stop and feed the people. Chop, chop, chop it up. Chop, chop, chop it up. Chop. Chop, chop it up. Chop, 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 chop it up. Kanda, eno ye mere. Kanda, be a bad belly. Kanda, tell me if you feel it. Kanda, do it when you're ready. Kanda, tabi na kanene. Kanda, hands up in the air like. Kanda, eno ye mere. Kanda, be a bad belly. Kanda, eno ye mere. Kanda, be a bad belly. Kanda, tell me if you feel it. Kanda, do it when you're ready. Kanda, tabi na kanene. 
Wakanda Antarctic gonna be like Kanda Eno ye mere Kanda Be a bad belly Kanda So I think this question of empathy is really interesting because uh so I saw Urta Punjab this weekend. Mm-hmm. And what is Urta Punjab about? So it's a Hindi movie that discusses the heroin and drug epidemic in the state of Punjab, which is in northwest India and like the region straddles Pakistan and India. Um and this issue has been has really exploded since around like 2007-2008. The movie is really really good. Like I cannot put into words how nuanced and incredible it is especially for like a high budget multi-star production. So the film became notorious after the censor board would not allow it to screen. Mm-hmm. And that was because there were some quote unquote issues with political parties getting offended uh and saying like this is going to impact us before the election. Well, maybe if you all did your job as political leaders, this wouldn't be an issue. Now, would it? Wait, what? Um, what? This film discusses just how many different types of people this epidemic impacts. So you have a musician uh, played by Shahid Kapoor, who is, is an addict and who glorifies this drug culture in his music. Mm-hmm. You have a migrant worker from Bihar who, because of family circumstances, has to come to Punjab to work in agricultural fields. Mm-hmm. And finds herself on accident smuggling drugs or like trying to sell off like three kilos worth of drugs and finds herself in this human trafficking situation. And that's that character is portrayed by Ali Abad. Mm-hmm. You have a doctor uh, who is trying to combat in her own ways the drug epidemic by hosting a rehab center and doing outreach, educational outreach. And that's portrayed by Karina Kapoor. And then the last character is a police officer. And you see how law enforcement. Uh, actually enables the drug addiction as opposed to stopping it. Mm. And that's played by a, a newer actor whose name I can't remember off the top of my head. Before I even started it, I wasn't expecting it to have the amount of character development that it did. If anyone plans on watching this, like it's really important to know that there are pretty graphic scenes of sexual assault and it's in context and it's not gratuitous, but it is very important to know like I had to turn over um and not watch those scenes. The reason I want to talk about this movie is not only does it highlight the impact of opioid uh, epidemics and like opioid addiction in India, but it really plays into what we see in the US with opioid addiction here. Mm-hmm. Because this isn't like a one-off issue that India is experiencing or Punjab is yeah. experiencing. Like we see it every day in the US. From a public health standpoint, I'm curious to hear what you have to think about just the the epidemic. Well, the US context is so challenging because, you know, the Surgeon General and my other boyfriend Vivek Murthy mm-hmm. put out call to action that is a country that we really need to pay attention to op- opioid overdose to responding as community as a community uh, against this kind of crisis that's taking over but the issue is is that when it was communities of color that were addicted in the 90s it was a war on drugs it was specifically very political and it was oriented around the police and it was around oriented around incarceration it was oriented around voting access so those were the things that shaped overdose issues and abuse, substance abuse in that period and then now when it's impacting more so white communities then it becomes a public health issue i'm not saying it shouldn't be considered a public health issue it it is 100% totally a public health issue yeah um it's just unfortunate the way it got criminalized then and in the 80s and 90s and then the way it yeah. is perceived now and 
like from what little I understand, it's like we're not training our health professionals to deal with this very well. Harvard medical students are teaching themselves how to respond to opioid overdose. Like it's not part of the curriculum. So that's what's actually really interesting. So last week, tonight's most recent episode talked about uh, heroin and the opioid epidemic. Mm -hmm. And what I didn't realize was in the 90s, there was this major push by chronic pain patient advocates. Um, And that's great. Like definitely should have that. But what ended up happening was pharmaceutical companies started to lobby to weaken those regulations essentially like have opioids prescribed for everything like oxycontin Mm -hmm. to be prescribed for everything so all of a sudden uh you have all these different types of patients on these drugs um and what the surgeon general actually mentioned was that there are 2.5 million prescriptions for opioids in this country right now that is enough for every american adult plus some you have doctors who are over prescribing it you have uh, people who are easily addicted and because they don't know like what the side effects are going to be. And there's not enough education around stronger painkillers. Don't understand how to wean themselves off of it or what type of dosage is actually correct for them. And then you have like the second layer of access to rehab. And that, you mentioned Indiana. Indiana expanded access to Medicaid. Access to Medicaid, which meant that rural health centers are funded. And that means that people in those areas actually can go and seek help. You know who has an expanded Medicaid? Missouri. We have a lot of rural white uh, opioid users. We also were the number one meth producer for many, many years. Alaska finally overtook us. I guess that's a badge of honor. Oh, wow. Mm -hmm. That's what we're dealing with. And when our legislature refuses to expand Medicaid because they say we can't quote unquote afford it. And like, on the other hand are passing good Samaritan laws. Yeah. EMT docs or like bystanders can give the anti-opiate overdose medication. Mm -hmm. It's like, that's great that we have that, but we can have more preventative legislation in place until we can like have an overarching response like from the federal government or from like larger organizations to this chronic problem. Um, and when you were mentioning how like the opioid epidemic looks by race, no better case study than Missouri, where Cherokee Street in St. Louis in the 1980s and 90s was ravaged by heroin and ravaged by poverty. And it was black poverty. And now it's been hella gentrified. Black St. Louis residents can't afford to live there. And on the other hand, you have rural white opioid problems that are being addressed by the legislature. It's not just a localized thing whatsoever. Uh, I was just like looking up information on how the heroin epidemic and the drug epidemic in Punjab was like really started. Mm -hmm. And opium was actually the main drug that was like cultivated in Punjab, but also in Pakistan and trafficked over. But opium has a third of the potency of heroin. It was a problem, but not at the level it's mm-hmm. at now. Mm-hmm. And it was also uh, cultivated in Rajasthan, one of the neighboring states. And it wasn't until the government shut off like one of the major corridors that heroin became the big issue. So all of a sudden, like your opium flow, flow stops. People start cultivating heroin from Pakistan. There also is zero infrastructure for rehab. I mean, it just even... Literally not. Even just talking about rehab, there's a lot of different very contentious discussions about what is the best way to treat substance abuse. An alternative that a lot of people are talking about is, is there a pill that can solve this? Mm -hmm. There's been a lot of really good research on this. Uh Radiolab did in December last year, they did an excellent episode called The Fix, Mm -hmm. um, which talked about, is there a pill that can fix addiction? I recommend checking that out. 
The Atlantic had an article in April of last year, March of last year, that talks about this uh, Scandinavian countries deal with addiction versus the U.S. and how um, like AA and NA uh, work for certain people, but it's not a, a cure-all and that there need to be other options available. Like we need to talk about substance abuse. We need to talk about continue talking about mental health if people are self-medicating as well is another issue. So it's all interconnected and they all happen to be things that are severely underfunded or not prioritized. Not only does Punjab have no infrastructure for any sort of rehabilitation or any sort of mental health lens, the government like is literally like is not funding at all any sort of intervention. And it's not even a question of, oh, this is happening in Punjab, so why does it matter to us the country? you don't know when the next epidemic is going to happen and where it's going to happen. And to see so much inaction Mm -hmm. is troubling. A lot of responses to these type of things, mental health issues included, Mm -hmm. can be very, very low tech and easily implemented. And a lot of times they have to just do with people. A really good model comes from Dr. Vikram Patel, who's a leading researcher who focuses on global mental health. And he has a NGO based in Goa that does a lot of work on farmer suicides in India. Mm-hmm. Um, typically in India, suicides are, people are committing suicide with pesticides and it's a, yeah. yep. and a lot of the strategies they're doing are basic training. Like you could call it mental health first aid um, with individuals in the community who can then go to other individuals in the community and continue these conversations and just checking in and um, yeah. I think those are models that need to be replicated. Funnily enough, something I learned at the NAACP forum today is that Boone County actually has a intervention crisis training mm-hmm. for police officers that they're trying to expand to the general public, specifically for low-tech mental health intervention. I wish I made up the phrase mental health first aid, but there's actually a thing that exists out there that does programs called mental health first aid. Um, that trains health, health professionals, community members, other professionals on how to how to respond because it's these are all integrated issues. Um, it, the approach cannot be siloed. But on a lighter note, I think uh, I'm making an executive decision, and I'm going to call our podcast the Almira Radio Hour, a podcast about um, dusting off culture news and specifically Missouri news that you haven't heard this week. (laughs) I feel like this podcast is just, I'm like accepting that it's going to be like about Missouri and then like the rest of the world on the side. (laughs) Because it's encouraging people to pay attention to their own local politics. No, I totally agree. But I was just tickling (laughs) me. Like, Like I should count the number of times Missouri is said in this episode. It's just all out of love. We are ground zero for like weird crap. No, it's just people need to pay attention to what's what's happening outside of the coasts. 100%. It actually really bothers me that like I hear all these things about photo ID, blah, blah, blah. But nobody talks about the fact that Missouri is innovating a new way to mess with people's right to vote. Nobody. Nobody talks about Amendment 6. Like, I reached out to Politically Reactive. I reached out to Reveal Podcast. I'm like, hey, guys, BT Dubs, this is happening at a whole different level here. And they're like, okay, things innovate here. Like, the 72-hour waiting period started here for abortion. You know what's funny is your use of the word innovate. It's it's something. Missouri, an incubator for really restrictive <laughs> <Yeah>. policy. <laughs> That's a startup I can get behind. Nope.
That's the startup I want. Startup I want to leave behind. <laughs> that, is like, that is like the most positive sounding word. <laughs> like we're so, going to innovate ways to oppress people. So I have this joke that like my cheeks have gotten so much bigger in the last two years because I have to smile. Like this is where I hide all my hate and disgust is through smiling. <laughs> so my cheek muscles are really well developed. And other news, since we are both from the Midwest and as a result care a lot about labor, um, yes, big thing happened at Harvard yes. today or like this week. So today, no, you're yeah, today, it was today. It was today. I just like said this week only because I was so excited. Timestamps yeah, it's, it's were been not like registering really with me, but it also it's like been a great build up this week. Like it's only oh, Tuesday, yeah, yeah, like. Yeah. It's been There's been a lot so of great good. action. Okay, okay. Rewind, rewind, rewind. Yeah. So what's happening? I go to Harvard. Harvard has a $36 billion endowment, which is greater than the endowments of Yale and Columbia University combined. Damn. Our HUDS workers, our Harvard University dining staff, services staff, have been on strike um, for over two weeks now. You know, their demands, I wouldn't even call them demands, their reasonable, their reasonable asks, their reasonable requests were Mm -hmm. a minimum of $35,000 a year salary and their copay on their health insurance for that to not go up. And the university was like, no. And so they went went on strike. And it's been really powerful as a student here to be a part of it and to witness it. One of the most hardening experiences I had was when we did a lunch rally in between students of the School of Public Health, students at the medical school who are wearing their white coats, and then all of our HUDS yeah, workers who we have like personal relationships with. Like the people who work in mm-hmm. our cafeterias, they're like second family for a lot of us. They're the ones who know our names, who say hello. Yeah. Like, you know, they get to know us a little bit more than some professors do. So it was really cool to be able to be out there and help amplify their needs and voices. There was one individual who was incredible. Her name's Rosa, and she's been at the forefront of activism and organizing with Local Mm -hmm. 26, the union here. She works at the School of Public Health. She was arrested in Harvard Yard with a bunch of other staff in active civil disobedience. Like, she is incredible and she most recently also can i mention that of course it's a woman of color leading just leading at the forefront she wrote an op-ed in this editorial that was published in the new york times rosa wrote on my way to work each morning i pass a building with the inscription the highest attainable standard of health is one of the fundamental rights of every human being if harvard believes this why is the administration asking dining hall workers to pay even more for their health care that just like sent chills because I know exactly where on the side of the School of Public Health that quote is. And, uh-huh. you know, you have this huge irony of people not getting what they need. And then you also have this additional yeah. irony of Harvard receiving this huge endowment to study race, racial inequality. Optics. 
a bajillion, I mean like... A bajillion, it was like 10 million, uh, yeah, right? Okay, bajillion is like an exaggeration. And we can't even support the staff that's primarily of yeah. color. The university, you know, they reached a tentative deal mm -hmm. today, which is important. And the details of that de deal will unfold yeah. over the week. But it's been really frustrating to read the communications that have come out of that office. Drew Faust, the president, makes at least 900000 Yeah. The only thing our HUD staffers are asking 35. for is $35,000 yeah. a year. And they'd have to work for like more than 20 years to make what she makes in one year. Just let that fact settle in. And it's true. The university has said that Harvard staff are paid more. On average. On average than other Cambridge staff. But like, it's like, a, that's a really nice statistical way to skew things. Because that's not saying that's not the minimum. That's just Well, the I may or may not have taken a and couple also, of stat classes here and there. Oh, yeah, you're a stats major. But, uh, Hit me up. That doesn't, that doesn't really play out when you're talking about, you know, somebody's living wage. Like, no. No. Also, 35K, like, we pay 50000 To go to school. To go to school here. 35000 is not enough to live in Boston and Cambridge yep. anymore. Yeah. You can't, if you can't afford rent in the city, you're living further away. The transportation that means you have to cost. Have a car or reliable access to the tea. Yep. Costs of the tea are going up. The hours that the tea is open are going down. Mm. I've conveyed the immensity of this issue, but the fact that an, a tentative agreement was finally reached is huge. And I hope that is, it serves as a symbol um, for other institutions. Well, so just parallel to that, or like, I guess a really messed up mirror to that is what happened last year at Mizzou where you had mm -hmm. all the, you had the protests, but it was a culmination of labor rights, reproductive rights and uh, racial in inequity mm -hmm. and the labor rights situation. It stems from the graduate students learning that they were going to lose their health insurance 24 hours before the marketplace closed. Keep in mind, the administration had plenty of time to tell them and give them a heads up. Stemming from that came the grad student union drive. The grad students voted for a union. The administration still isn't accepting their union. They're in court. Wait, didn't Obama, didn't the, wasn't there private, just a... That's okay. NLRB, or the National Labor Review Board, ruled that private schools can unionize. Public okay, schools... Okay, that was a... That's a huge interesting. deal. That is yeah. interesting because I was like, that news sent reverberations here because mm -hmm. finally, like, we had a union for our TA, their teaching assistants, and, you know, people started uni unionizing right away. It does not apply to states. It doesn't apply to public schools. So Mizzou's graduate student union, they're in court with the university. And these are people who get paid less than minimum wage to teach the undergraduates who pay between 8000 to like 15000 a semester. And we got, we're supposed to be a research institution and these TAs aren't getting paid enough to like live and they're teaching and it's supposed to do research and help support their professors. And then our rankings slip and then the Missouri legislature cuts funding because they're like, you're not doing what you say you're supposed to be doing as a research institution. And it all like plays into each other. Um, and so it's just like really interesting that you have this parallel, like what happens at a private institution, like the, a lot of the power that can come from that. And like a lot of the stuff that happens at public institutions. And again, like the lack of recognition of, um, of the problems there. And I'm not saying that like, we shouldn't be paying attention to Harvard, like absolutely. And we should look at like, 
the very visible optics. Uh, there's a really good podcast called Belabored that looks at labor issues throughout the world. Mm-hmm. Um, and they actually covered Harvard this week. The only reason I'm talking about Harvard is I went... Oh, it's massive. It's oh, okay, a huge... Okay. It, like, this is a huge win for labor. I, I th- we alluded to this and when we were talking about tuition and yeah. accessibility of graduate or accessibility of education. Mm-hmm. And we're like, we're doing this in the context of like, people don't realize that public universities are becoming less public and that at least private universities are being honest that they're really expensive. Anyway, it's big news. It is I hope it has, re- I hope this bolsters action that's happening at public universities. I hope honestly. so too. I really hope so too. Yeah, and I know like the organizers at Harvard actually, uh, the grad student uh, organizers. So it's really cool that a lot of people, at least in the politically progressive space, are all actually walking the walk on their values. And hey, that's our episode. Happy Election Eve for our American audience. We hope you are excited to vote tomorrow and look forward to hearing your stories on that front. You can get at us on Twitter at Elmira Radio. Find us on online at elmiraradio.tumblr.com. And you can download us wherever you like to get your podcasts, so iTunes or Stitcher. As always, it would mean so much if you could leave us a review. And yeah, we'll catch you next time. <laughs>